Hey there, it's Jeff Benjamin with the Investment News Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Bruce Kelly. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, We got a lot on the agenda today, a lot of cool things to talk about. Uh, What are we starting off with, Bruce? Well, you know today's date, Jeff, right? Was that a riddle? Uh, July 1st. It's July 1st. So a new um, rule that kind of dictates how brokers can sell products to clients takes effect today. Oh, oh yeah. It's known as regulation best interest. Remember that one, Jeff? Yes, I do. Now, there's all kinds of ins and outs with this standard of care that's being applied to uh, to sales of products and investment advice and the like. And we'll get into a, a couple of those. But I, But the fascinating thing to me is how this evolved. And the overarching question is, why does the industry need a new standard of care? Will this new standard be any better than the old one, which is called the suitability standard? And will it eventually have any real impact on advisors at broker-dealers and uh, impact on their behavior and how they actually uh, sell or advise clients to buy products? Uh, Or will this just become some kind of uh, bureaucratic, you know, thing that brokers and firms have to check off on customer relationship uh, sales forms, another box to tick after uh, the industry has been debating how to have a better sales standard for clients for really the past 10 years. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that this, as you know, and probably all of our audience knows, this followed the kind of the meltdown or breakdown or failure of the uh, the DOL rule. Uh, and this was supposed to be the, the next best thing to that. Well, that and, rule didn't fail. That, that rule was scrapped by a judge in Texas, if I recall. Right. I, I, I just mean it's, it's, it's not there. It failed to become a law. Anyway, I find interesting about this thing is the, the lawsuit that was filed by some of the RIAs, including Michael Kitsis and XY Planning Network, that tried to get out ahead of this thing and saying that it, it violates the uh, Dodd-Frank rule in that it uh, does not apply the same standards to, to brokers as it does to advisors. But to me, it's, I mean, I'm in the camp of that it's kind of better than nothing, but uh, I know that some people that are hardcore purists on the RIA side say we want the, the brokers held to the same standards that we're held to. And it seems like if they can't have it that way, they'd rather just kind of burn down the house. To me, I think this is better than nothing. It might not be as good as the DOL rule, but it's probably better than suitability. And I tell you, I could go into a whole rant about how I'm not sure this is really all that interesting to consumers anyway. I think this is this kind of looks and feels like a bunch of gobbledygook to a lot of people out there that are, that are trying to hire a broker or an advisor. They don't know what best interest or suitability or fiduciary standard is. They think everybody's well, that's where, in that's the same. that's where you and I agree, I think, because I fear that this could just become another, like I said, bureaucratic, you know, a, a form to fill out or something like that for people. Um, I do think this is better than this old suitability standard. I think that's what SEC Commissioner uh, Clayton was shooting for. I, I think it's weaker than the Department of Labor's fiduciary standard, which would have brought 
of brokers who rec- who work with people's retirement accounts, which is about half the industry, they would have to act like a fiduciary as opposed to a broker when giving investment advice. The brokerage industry didn't like that because it opened them up to all kinds of costs and liabilities that they didn't want to be on the hook for uh, in terms of lawsuits from investors and the plaintiff's bar. But I think similarly here too, even though you have, you know, part of the nuts and bolts of the Reg BI is that, you know, material conflicts of interest are going to have to be revealed. There's going to be have to be a reasonable basis that a recommendation of a product or service is in the best interest of a customer. All these are good commonsensical things, but it does, in the end, it leaves the um, the real workings of the rules, uh, uh, how it is actually put into effect and the impact of it into the hands of attorneys and advocates and and the like. So I don't know how, you know, it goes into effect literally today. Has the brokerage industry changed at all? I don't think so. (laughs) There's just this new rule hanging (laughs) over it, you know, and we'll have to wait for months or years to see how, you know, FINRA looks at this, how the SEC looks at this, how the uh, state securities commissioners look at this and put it into effect, in other words. Right. And and even though that everyone in the brokerage industry knew this was coming for a year or more, and, and I hear what you're saying, like it's day one of this Reg BI and is it different? You know, to be fair, um, the brokerage industry made a lot of changes in preparation for the DOL rule because that looked that like true. it was going to happen. And a lot of those things likely carried over. A lot of the cleaning up of, you know, different types of share classes with different fee structures right. attached to and stuff. And then on top of that, uh, we are in the middle of a global pandemic that has a lot of things shut down. And so maybe yes. a lot of the rallying the troops and battening down the hatches at the brokerage firms would have happened or would have been more visible had it not been for the fact that everybody's working out of their homes. So it, it's it's kind of hard to tell what uh, changes the brokerage industry did make and what they had to make or have to make. You know, I I, I don't know. I will be interested in following this and seeing what happens, but I'm still of the camp that this feels so much like inside baseball and it's felt that way forever to me because you go pick somebody out on the street, ask them what a fiduciary rule is, a fiduciary standard, suitability, best interest. They don't know. It's like when you buy a house and they just keep handing papers in front of you to sign and they, they kind of summarize them. Oh, this means that we're not going to, you know, have any problems if there's a crack in the foundation. Or this means that if you didn't have flood insurance, we're not on the hook for that. And that's what people, you know, most consumers who are novices to the financial services industry, they're going to professional and they just assume that that person is looking out for them. But they also know, unless you're a complete, you know, halfwit, they know that, these brokers or advisors or whatever are being paid somehow. And they're being paid largely by the fact that you're their client. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about this new uh, regulation, uh, Best Interest. And you came across some research recently, Jeff, that suggested that um, advisors are leaving the brokerage industry, uh, will continue to leave the brokerage industry where this new rule is being implemented and continue to go to the RIA side of the street where the fiduciary rule is. So, yeah. you know, 
the reg BI is here, but it seems like brokers are still running away from Wall Street and want to go be a fiduciary at an RIA. Yeah, that that is an excellent point, Bruce. The TD Ameritrade Institutional uh, just released uh, their semi-annual study on on breakaway brokers. And this study includes a look at brokers that they've interviewed that they know are on the fence or considering it or moving in that direction. And also it includes brokers or uh, advisors or who became independent financial advisors within the past, I think, decade. So they used to be brokers. And what this showed is that this trend that's been going on for a decade or more of people moving into the independent space is just continuing. And the hurdles that were always there just continue to fall away. The things like they, you know, they don't care about giving up their securities licenses. They, they think they're going to make more money on the independent side. Um, they will make this more one, money. Right. And, and this one surprised me is they don't think they're getting enough benefit from the big brand of a warehouse like Merrill or, or, or Wells Fargo to impact their ability to make money and have a successful business. And they're not afraid of running a business. That to me is a, a big interesting part of being independent financial advisor, because if you're at a warehouse, you know, even though you manage your own book of business, you have your own clients, you might even have your own team that you manage, you're still not running a business. If you're an independent financial advisor, and a lot of times you are running a business, you're responsible for everything. So yeah, the notion that, you know, you have these turnkey firms that uh, can help an advisor leave Merrill Lynch on Friday afternoon and go set up an independent RIA, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Wells Fargo, any of the big banks, the degree of efficiency that they have is is remarkable compared to 10 or 20 years ago when advisors leaving Wall Street began to um, really, when the pace of that really began to pick up. The culture of the wirehouse has changed dramatically. Um, there's a lot less independence for the big brokers there. Bank of America wants Merrill Lynch people to do more banking, mm-hmm. uh, right? And they pay them to do more banking services and products and the like. Yeah. Also, every year, you know, these guys have to go through the hurdle of uh, watching the um, the pay rate known as the grid change every year and be revised. And that squeezes the more veteran lower end advisors every year, it seems. Mm-hmm. The, wire, the banks just want to have advisors with a million dollars or more in uh, annual fees and revenues. And uh, also, you know, the, the banks have also made advisors, uh, incentivize them to work together in teams, which makes it harder to leave. Because if you have a team of three, four, five, six people, everybody has to be on board, particularly the senior guy, right? If you want to jump to an independent RA, as TD is suggesting right. in their research. So, you definitely make more money, you know, as an RIA, but you also absorb, you have the potential to, but you absorb the cost of running your own business, right? So when you're at Merrill Lynch, Merrill Lynch pays for your office, right? Yeah. When you are an independent RIA, you have to pay for your office. Right. And all your signage and all that kind of stuff, you know. But the the long-term benefit of building equity in your business, um, you know, which you can turn around and sell. At, at a certain point in time uh, is very attractive. So. Yeah, the, the survey, they also found that the there were a lot of advisor, a lot of brokerage reps now that were considering 
joining a larger RA and not just launching their own practice and stuff like that. And they're yeah, that's they're open to right, right. But it, it also is still it's still a migration away from the warehouses. And yeah, and and I, on the point of the migration away from the warehouses, I I thought it was really interesting that this this there's nothing that I've seen out there that shows anything except an increased migration away from the warehouses. But meanwhile, going back to our first segment. You've got all these uh, these these independent RIA types that are belly aching because Reg BI now is so much easier and in, in you know less uh, I guess uh, regulatory than than the fiduciary standard that independent financial advisors are have to operate under. Um, so if that were the case, that that doesn't make the case for why brokers are moving toward the independent channel if if the regulatory oversight is really that much more arduous or maybe they're not factoring that in or, or maybe most brokers feel like they're already operating under some form of fiduciary standard, even if it is their own fiduciary standard that they feel like they're, they're doing the right thing on behalf of their clients. Okay. Now to topic number three, uh, Bruce, I know this is something that's kind of been in your craw. You've been following this closely for a while. Newbridge Securities and their focus report. It looks like they're, uh, they can't seem to get out of their own way, at least uh, on their balance sheet. What What is this all about? Well, you know, it's a special time of year for me, Jeff, not only with Reg BI coming in, but it is focus report time. Oh, man, that sounds rowdy. And I love this time of year almost as much as Christmas because it's when <laughs> – the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, finally gets around to posting physical versions of annual broker-dealers' annual audited financial statements All right. onto the SEC.gov website. And why does that perk my interest so much, my friend? Well, I'll tell you. All right. It's because you can – you finally get – it's the only time of year you get a little – a glimpse under the hood of the financial workings for some of these firms that we write about. And, you know, there's so many uh, RIAs and broker dealers out there. I mean, we're covering dozens or hundreds of them sometimes in any given week, right? Mm -hmm. So you really want to know, particularly right now in a time of economic stress, right, which the pandemic has caused, which firms seem to be uh, healthy and viable and have a clean balance sheet, and which firms might have some obstacles on their balance sheet. You mentioned Newbridge. Newbridge, we just shouldn't focus on Newbridge. Newbridge is one of many firms that we're writing about. Uh, Newbridge, unfortunately, is filed its focus report recently, and recently it was published on the SEC website, as I mentioned. And their auditor is saying that because of a $9 million in deficits, they have doubt, quote-unquote doubt was the word they used, about the uh, firm's ability to make it as a going concern. Wow. Right? Yeah. After we reported that story, and Newbridge is a small to mid-sized firm. It has a, around 175 uh, brokers, 50 offices. I got a frantic call from one of their advisors uh, yesterday afternoon um, saying, you know, oh my, they're, they're, a lot of these guys are in New York, right? So they said, oh, my God. Sound like my cousin <laughs> from Long Island. Oh my God, what do you know? You know about what's going on at Newbridge? And I said, Well, what I know is what we reported, um, and this is the second year in a row that Newbridge has expressed these types of 
uh, concerns about its ability to make it going forward. Other firms, though, reveal not such uh, concerning material, say, Mm -hmm. but they reveal that they might be hit with a potential cost down the road related to an SEC fine or a FINRA exam of some sort. One of those was Hightower, which is part of the FINRA sweep into 529 plans, I believe. And the other was Berthel Fisher, which is another kind of small, mid-sized, or rather mid-sized broker-dealer out there. And they were weighing potentially uh, having to pay client money for restitution over um, high-fee mutual funds. And And they were caught up in the SEC's share class initiative from 2018. So... Uh, in the in the example of Hightower, they said they had you know they they had to put a million dollars aside or something like this for that Finra investigation. Yeah, but well, it, is that the one that where, number is just a place that that number is just a placeholder? It might wind up being a lot less that's, in the end for Hightower. That Hightower right? one, so they just talk- have to disclose this right as part of their audited statement. So it just gives us a little glimpse into what what's going on with the cash flow of these certain of these certain firms. That Hightower one, that's where you're talking about they were, uh, they said, I guess on their focus report, that they overcharged for 529 plans, correct? Yeah, 529 plans. That to me was amazing. I mean, when I first saw it, I thought, wow, that's kind of a screw up, but it's nice of them to admit. But I didn't realize that they were, they were, uh, it was part of their focus report and they, they didn't really have a choice but to admit it. Also, Bruce, I want to tell you that you might not know this, but you don't need to make impersonations of the New York accent because you kind of have that. Hey, <laughs> uh, you talking to me? I'm walking. New York here. is different from Long uh, Island. <laughs> oh, all right. It all sounds the same to me. All right. <laughs> so that's that's the that's what happens with these focus reports. That's why we watch them so closely. Um, you know, if if uh, a news story motivates a broker to actually call up a, a reporter, you know, who wrote something about their firm, then you know it struck a chord somehow, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we do it, basically. All right. Roger that. Jeff, now that we've mentioned the focus reports, I wanted to ask you about a story you wrote recently about ETF commissions and how um, the Fed was being charged commissions when it was buying ETFs as part of the um, the March uh, initiative and the March liquidity bailout uh, into the markets. You know, just last fall, yeah. we were writing stories every day about Schwab and Fidelity cutting all their ETF commissions to zero. Why? What, what's going on here? Yeah, that's a, th- this was kind of a fun little uh, way to look at what the Fed was doing with their unprecedented uh, move into the markets, buying corporate bonds and bond ETFs for the first time ever. And their first round of bond buying uh, at that level happened in May. And they published the information, I think, about 30 days later. And the Fed did. The Fed did. Yeah, because they're trying to be fully transparent in this. And I think it looks like they're doing a really good job of it. But the transparency has its limits, which you'll understand in a minute. Um, what they did was they ended up on, I think, $160 million worth of ETF purchases. They paid $20,000 in commissions, which sounds like a lot of money. 
and but I mean, broken down, it's really not that much uh, commission payments for what they got. Uh, and then you know, it'd be easy to ask, like, why don't they just open a Robinhood account uh, or Schwab.com or something like that? But the reason the Fed can't do this or didn't want to do this is because they're buying such a a bulk level of these bond ETFs that they would effectively move the market by putting it on one of these platforms. I mean, it wouldn't, it probably wasn't even a remote consideration that they would go to a Robin Hood or something like that. Uh, actually, BlackRock handled all their, their trading of this, of these trades. But um, what if they had done it just for kind of hypothetical thinking, they would have had such an impact on those bonds in the market. And what they're trying to do is have the most minimal impact as they can, because this is a effectively a bailout or a stimulus program. Because what happens when you go to these free platforms, it's free because the platforms are are selling the trades to market makers. They're, they're selling the trades to basically people that can get the execution for you. This, it's called, uh, they sell the order flow. It's legal, it's sketchy, but it's the reality of these free platforms. Is you and I, Bruce, as you know, small-time retail traders, we might go there and want to, you know, buy some, you know, a certain number of ETFs or something like that. Well, they will argue that by by combining your order with other orders, they'll be able to get a better price, and that's actually kind of difficult to prove, but it is the case that they make, and uh, that's that's what order flow is. They sell the order flow. And if you did that with the Fed's big giant purchases, it would lead to potential front running and stuff like that of people trying to get out and head of that trade. And it would kill the advantage that the Fed is trying to get and what they're trying to do to the bond market. But also a fun fact that you might like to know is the selling of order flows was actually created by Bernie Madoff. He was the guy that carved that little niche out. But it, it's such a lucrative deal uh, it can't be ignored. Even the New York Stock Exchange does it. It's just uh, the way it happens out there. So that's well, it's really why the only way those firms can make money these days, right? Because yeah, uh, now that they the cut days everything of being out, a market out. maker, you can't. You're not a market maker anymore, right? Or if you are, it's very minimal. You have to. Right. Firms have been getting squeezed on the trading floor for years, right? For decades. So mm-hmm. they have to, if you want to be in that business, you have to sell the order flow or do the prime brokerage for hedge funds, which is lending securities, right? Right. And those are those can be very lucrative businesses if you match them up with the technology and the algorithms, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's why they're that the Fed is paying commissions on their trades. And it does seem like they're being uh, taken uh, care of by BlackRock. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the order flow issue. And that's why the Fed uh, has to pay commissions when uh, you and I don't. So, Jeff, I, I, no- I noticed that you had a uh, recently, you've been very ornery when it comes to... <laughs> Uh, very ornery being being (laughs) called up out of the blue by public relations people. We call them flax on our, we're hacks and they're flax. That's how the, that's the nature of the eternal battle. Yeah. And, uh, but you wanted to get something off your chest regarding, um, these PR people or these flax, I believe. Right. Well, 
Yeah, you might be overstating it there, Bruce. I don't know if it's been bothering me that much. I've been a journalist for a long time, and <laughs> this is the part of the love-hate relationship between public relations people and journalists. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that I need them probably as much as they need me. Uh, I get a lot out of public relations people. Uh, sometimes I wish I didn't have to deal with them to get to the people I really want to talk to. But at other times, they're the people that can get me access to people and find me sources on different topics and stuff like that. But in particular, this is something that I've seen evolve. And I, I really noticed it over the past five years is this whole like embargo nonsense. I mean, we see embargoes on the most. Yeah, this is what you're upset about. Yeah, it's embargoes. Embargoes just for the uninitiated. Uh, embargoes is when a, a company will give you uh, information that is embargoed and can't be published until a preset date in the future, usually tomorrow morning or it could be a week from now, whatever. And it's, you know, the, the reporter agrees to it and then you can do a little bit of work on it ahead of time. Sometimes you can't show your hand too much talking to sources because then the story gets out there. But in our business, in the trade publications, usually we know if we're getting an embargo, all of our competitors are getting the same embargo. My question when I get an embargo is, is usually, first of all, is anybody else getting this ahead of me? Like they can publish it tonight and I can't publish it till tomorrow. That's a turnoff for me. And uh, why is this embargoed? And to me, there's got to be a good reason because I see embargoes of, you know, from public companies telling me that they're launching a new mutual fund tomorrow when the mutual fund has already been filed and it's public knowledge to anybody that wants to look for it. I mean, sometimes they'll send an embargo in, in the press embargo offer, but in the email, they'll have the actual press release. And I have to explain to these people, you just gave me the information without me agreeing to the embargo. There's no reason I would even, should even, you know, agree to this embargo. Yeah, um, so a PR person called me, uh, sent me an email this week and said, would I like some information about under embargo about company XYZ? I called that PR person up and that PR person told me the news uh, right off the bat after I introduced myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you know, I hadn't agreed to anything here. Right. You know, you just told me the news. <laughs> and the thing I get out of this is that a lot of these PR people are really young. They seem untrained. I don't know if they have much of a background in the news business. Have they read investment news or the other trade publications that they're pitching stories and information to? You know, when I started in this business over 20 years ago, people would call you up and go for a cup of coffee just for 10 or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. We can't do that now because of the pandemic, obviously, and everyone's staying put. Right. But that that seems to have petered out too, you know. I mean, so I just think that there's a lack of training uh, among a lot of these people and knowledge and background. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. And if it's, I don't know if they're like, if, if there's just a, such a crush of people or right. they don't, in the old days, they had somebody, a rabbi, as they say, take uh, a young person out of college under his or her wing and train them. It just doesn't seem to occur to me uh, to occur anymore. So. Yeah, I don't know if this is young people. I mean, there's always young people in every industry. Um, I think this has just become kind of a PR policy. I, I mean, originally, or not originally, but at one point, 
the the case for embargoes was that it get, it kind of reduces the potential for inaccuracy because when a when a big piece of news is released, you know every reporter is going to try and scramble to get it out first, and there might be mistakes. Well, the fix on that is you can fix anything pretty much quickly right now because everything's online and it's and it's easy. I think that they somehow there was some PR class somewhere that just spread like wildfire and everybody said, hey, if we put embargoes on these things, reporters perk up and pay more attention to it. But it's gotten so extreme. I mean, some of these things aren't even, are barely newsworthy. We don't need to see embargoes because you hired a new, you know, chief compliance officer. If it's going to be, and also people should know that an embargo is a, is almost like a handshake agreement. There's no law that says an, a reporter has to honor an embargo. I mean, as you know, Bruce, it wasn't that long ago that Investment News had a policy that we weren't going to accept any embargoes because we thought they were they were getting too ridiculous and we were trying to, you know, have our influence on things. And we've since gone back to accepting them because it frankly does make it a little bit easier in a very limited way. Right. We accept them in a very right. Limited but way. I mean, yeah. I got to tell you, I wish I would would keep a tally on this because I think. You know, three quarters of the embargo offers I get, they're not even things we would write about if you gave them to me exclusively. They're just not that. I don't really care if your CEO bought a new pair of shoelaces. That's that's not going to be news for us, whether you just put it under embargo or not. I agree. Anything else on embargoes, Jeff? I, I hope I have a an impact from my small corner of the world because I'm just about fed up with embargoes. So... Well, there, there you have it, I guess. Um, from the new Reg BI to this, uh, to wondering why brokers are still breaking away from Wall Street, and to uh, focus uh, audited financials by broker dealers. That was our show for the week. The coming weekend is Fourth of July. We wish you all. We're going to be posted on Monday, so we wish you all had a happy Fourth of July. You can find the Investment News podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. We'd love to hear some feedback from you. So hit Jeff or me up on Twitter. Jeff Benjamin is Benji Ryder, and Bruce Kelly is at BD News Guy. Uh, we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>